Welcome to The Intuitive Customer, where we discuss how you can improve your customer experience and your bottom line. And now, here are your hosts, award-winning influencer and pioneering author of seven books, Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton from Emory University. What I've discovered over the years is I will only take the mickey out of people that I feel I know. So as soon as I start taking the mickey out of them, it's actually sending them a signal that says, I know you well enough to be able to do this now. There have been studies that show even within like a negotiation. So if you've got these two parties who are at odds and there's some tension there, when one party or the other makes a joke, that releases a lot of that tension and can actually make it more likely that the parties will come to an agreement. It comes down to segmentation, doesn't it? Culturally, I guess it's not universal. Well, humor is universal, but what makes people laugh is not necessarily universal. So Colin, I had an amazing opportunity at the beginning of the new year. Wow, what was that? So my university lets us teach some short courses from time to time. So normally I teach over a course of an entire semester, but I got to teach this one week long course on humor. Wow. How to be funny. Yes, it's something I've wanted to do for years and years. Uh, It's a topic that's very interesting to me. And so I essentially, I taught about 40 MBA students how to write a stand-up comedy routine, and they're going to be performing it for each other in a couple of weeks. I'm very wow, excited about that's it. that's great, because that's, that's what's always amazed me about you, mate, that you used to do stand-up comedy, didn't you? I did, yeah, mostly in college, a little bit afterwards, but technically I was a professional and that I made a little bit of money doing it, but I never supported myself doing that. It was mostly a hobby. Did you have to give the money back? I mean, I, I was sued um, <laughs> at one point and threatened by other people. Um, no, it was, it was mostly a hobby. When I was in college, I was in um, a sketch comedy group. So we wrote short sketches, scripted comedy, like like Monty Python or Saturday Night Live. And then I also did stand-up. Well, that's amazing. I, I, I don't think I could do that. I've, I've always enjoyed – it sounds a bit stu- stupid, doesn't it? I've always enjoyed humor. And, in fact, my claim to fame is that when I was – I don't know, about 10, I bought home my school report. And on it, the teacher had written, Colin is the clown of the class. Yeah. And I wear that with a badge of pride. Yes. I'm not sure your teacher meant it that way, but yes. No. In all seriousness, humor matters. Humor can provide us with some benefits, like even within a business context. And the reason that I was able to get the business school to let me to teach this class is that I made this case that when we make people laugh, it's disarming. It allows them to be more willing to listen to us. We can be more persuasive. There are a bunch of documented health benefits of laughter. Um, it can reduce tension. It can be good for our relationship. So I was able to go in and, and make the case that our, our MBA students would be better off for being able to tell jokes better and that it was important in that regard. Yeah, no, and, and I've literally coached members of the team to let their humor come out. Okay, now it needs to be, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, it needs to be appropriate. Okay, and it needs to be done at the appropriate time. But I have found that cracking jokes, having a sense of humor 
is a big advantage. Okay. Yeah. No, I mean, and when I look back on on the, my career, such as it is that I've had, I, I'm I'm not the smartest person who does what I do. I'm I'm not the the most kind of productive researcher who does what I do. I I, I try to hold my own in those regards. But the thing that's provided me with the single greatest advantage in my career is the fact that I'm funny and that I've been able to leverage that. And so to the extent I can make more people more comfortable in being funny themselves, I want to try to do that. The other thing as we talk about business stuff, and the danger is we're going to rattle on about this because we I know we've got some theory to get into that um, uh, that may may help interest people as well. It is disarming, isn't it? It brings everybody to a sort of a, a, a common sense or, or a common level, should we say. Let, let me just read you this one quote, if I may, because you talk about this from a sort of a business context. And, you know, one of the reasons that we're doing this podcast is you and I just enjoy mucking about with each other um, and having a laugh. And we thought it may, you know, that sort of would work. This is a review that was left on Apple Podcast which is a five-star review, and let me, it's called, it's entitled Delightfully Humorous and Informative. It says, the dynamic between the two hosts absolutely makes the podcast. Each brings their own uh, unique take on the topic, their own unique perspective, and play on each other's sense of humor. I come away from each episode feeling a little bit of joy and feeling a bit smarter, a win-win. Yeah, and that for me, I love that. I love that review. And, you know, thank you for whoever left that. But I, I think it just goes to show that you can mix a, uh, an interesting topic that, that sometimes can be complicated, like behavioral science, with humor and have a good time and do it at the, the, the same time. We wouldn't have done this for four years if, you know, you didn't make me laugh when we were recording these and I didn't make you laugh. Like the, the fact that it's enjoyable and that we can, you know. And I, and I have to say, mate, I think your, your rates have been really reasonable. I mean, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we, we do what we have to to yeah. get laughs. I mean, a thousand pounds for five minutes is it's fine by me. <laughs> Good. I'll continue. Oh, let's, to... let's scrub that bit just in case that's a verbal contract. <laughs> <laughs> it's too late. It's already out there. It's on the internet. <laughs> let's talk through the theories of humor, which sounds like the worst idea in the world, but people who are naturally funny, just like people who are naturally charismatic kind of understand intuitively some of these rules. But for the rest of us, for when we want to actually learn and become better at something, it's useful to, to try to figure out the why of it. So what makes public speakers better public speakers? And, and then you can kind of figure out the path that you can take and the ways that you can, can become better at it. Same with humor, right? So if we want to become funnier, it is useful to consider what makes things funny. Now, I will say, I'm going to lay out four theories today. Let me just jump in there because I, I, I want the audience to think about their call center agent, contact center agent, their account manager, the way that they run marketing, you know, and how these theories of humor could be applied to those situations. So it's not just, you know, humor in, in an abstract, it's humor in that business context, I guess, is the key here. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. So we'll be talking about these from a theory perspective. But as you say, the hope is that they can become practically useful for you, you know, just interpersonally around the office, but then also as you as you lead and train. All right. So um, let me give you this caveat before we start. I'm going to go through four theories. I think one of them is pretty good. <laughs> 
which isn't like a huge ringing endorsement. I think they're all useful. I think they're all useful for helping us understand what's going on. But I'm a scientist. And from a a science perspective, most of these theories are only okay. Most of them are not great at making real specific predictions. Most of them are not great at kind of distinguishing one thing from another. Most of the, the humor that you find funny could potentially be explained simultaneously by two or even three of these theories operating. And as you, as you were saying that, I was thinking to my wife, who would say to me, that's not funny when I say something to her. Well, the, the great part <laughs> about this um, this episode is you'll be able to then turn around and say, no, in fact, it is. And here's a quote from Cicero that explains why it is. <laughs> and then she'll relent at that point. She'll agree and start laughing. It's very simple, mate. I'm just going to say to her, here's Ryan's number. Call him because he told me it was. Yeah. I'll be sure to not make your marital problems any worse, Colin. Send your wife right on over to me. All right. Let's go through through our, our set of theories here. So we've got, we've got four of them that we're going to talk about. The first one is called superiority theory or sometimes the sudden glory theory of humor. And the idea here is that humor comes from us feeling superior to some other person or sometimes to our past selves. And the reason it's called sudden glory is this quote from the philosopher Thomas Hobbes from the 1600s. He said, the passion of laughter is nothing else but sudden glory arising from some sudden conception of some eminency in ourselves by comparison with the infirmity of others or with our own formerly. So that was complicated, but it's essentially the idea that we, we feel suddenly superior to other people and that causes us to laugh. So maybe what we maybe what we should do is I, I sent you some YouTube clips and we'll put these YouTube clips in the show notes. So people may want to listen to this and even play the YouTube clip. But there was a YouTube clip, and, and I love Monty Pythons. There was a YouTube clip of the Holy Grail where the king was riding along, not that he had a horse. He had two coconuts, in fact. And he meets a load of peasants, and he starts asking who lives in the castle. And really good, really good sketch. But that's probably a, a good example of, of this, isn't it? Yeah. So you're referring to the, the constitutional peasant sketch where the king tries to kind of exert his authority over these peasants and the the peasant gives him a full philosophical discourse on the nature of power yeah he 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 turns around and says he says they say why should we do what you're saying he says well i'm king and they said well i didn't vote for you (laughs) you don't vote for very nice (laughs) (laughs) no and he Part of the humor in that scene, and again, as I say, this can be explained from multiple perspectives, but at least part of it comes from watching this king get deflated in that way, right? Where he's kind of being humiliated by this person that he considers under him and and watching him be brought down makes us feel superior. Um, And so Hobbes would say that that is what causes the humor in that scene. Right, right. And is that where, and tell me if I'm talking too much, mate, because I I just find this fascinating. Is that where sarcasm comes in? It can, absolutely. A lot of sarcasm, especially like kind of barbed sarcasm, where some of the humor comes from the other person not getting it for a second and so feeling a little silly, that would be superiority theory. Other examples would be a lot of like physical comedy. So if we see somebody like slip and fall, sometimes that makes us laugh because, you know, they look ridiculous. Insults and roasts are superiority theory. 
practical jokes and pranks are superiority theory. So a lot of those are are fairly kind of okay or can be. There's also a lot of really dark superiority theory. So racist, sexist, ethnic jokes are all examples of superiority theory. Obviously, I'm not endorsing those by any means. Even if we can understand why they might be funny in certain contexts to certain people, they're also obviously very deeply damaging and so not good. But when you get down to, I mean, taking what you're saying so far, this is already fascinating. It it comes down to segmentation, doesn't it? It absolutely can, yeah. You know, there are things that I find, so I love Monty Pythons. My wife, Lorraine, hates it, you know? If I look, and we've talked about this again, culturally, there's a difference between UK humour and US humour, you know? Living in both countries, I find that the UK humour is much more subtle in the, the, their, their approach to things. Uh, and, and therefore, it sort of comes down to that segmentation. That I guess it's not universal. Well, humour is universal, but what makes people laugh is not necessarily universal. Or maybe it's the extent to which they laugh. Because I would find some of the slapstick stuff humorous, but it doesn't make me fall over laugh where some of the more subtle stuff is is really funny. You're you're absolutely correct. So I'm a big fan of of British comedy. I think that some UK humor can be a little more barbed also, a little more aggressive than humor in the US. Again, lots of exceptions to that rule. I think that's generally true. So you're pointing to one of the weaknesses of superiority theory, and it's actually going to be a, a problem with the first three theories that I'll, I'll talk about. Okay. You're completely right that comedy and humor are very much filtered through a cultural lens, and it depends on kind of our own preferences, our own history. A religious person will often find jokes about religion not funny at all, whereas a non-religious person might find them very funny. So, Superiority theory doesn't do a good job explaining why that is. It just says, well, if if you feel superior to somebody, you should find that funny. But it it misses a lot of this nuance. It doesn't include kind of cultural explanations either. So we'll we'll get to why. And I think the fourth theory that I'll explain to you starts to explain why some of those differences occur. But for now, let me just put a pin in that and say, yes, you're correct. And and we'll we'll get to why in, in just a little bit. Does that work? Yep. Okay. All right, so the second theory that we're going to introduce is called relief theory. This has a very long pedigree. It goes back hundreds of years. And the idea is that this goes back to the kind of the medical theories of the human body and the idea that that we had various kind of pressures within us. So, um, you know, if you think back to the days when, when they used to bleed people who had fevers, the idea there was that one of your humors was out of balance. And so they needed to relieve that pressure. Turned out it was not a good theory of medical decision-making. Killed a lot of people. But that, that's actually where the word humor comes from in the context that we use it today. The idea was that if you were laughing, it was because one of your humors was imbalanced. And so that the nature of the word started to be changed over time. This is sometimes called a, a pneumatic theory or hydraulic theory. And so it's the idea is that some pressure builds up within you, and then humor is the release of that pressure. So one of the big proponents of relief theory was Sigmund Freud. And so he explained a lot of inappropriate humor 
or humor about kind of concerns about death, kind of gallows humor. I was going to say sort of a dark humor where you find yourself laughing about something that you know that you shouldn't laugh at. Exactly. If there's something we feel uncomfortable about, it kind of creates this psychic pressure within us. It makes us feel uncomfortable. And then laughter or humor can be a relief of that pressure. Yeah. I mean, I find that if you're in a tense situation. Yes. I've been in, I don't know, just before you get on stage or something to a big audience, you start to use a lot more humor and and, and the, 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 that sort of heightened level of anxiety, more humor comes out. Oh, you're, you're noting this exactly. That's exactly where this theory of humor would apply. So if we're in tense situations, there'll be a lot more kind of tittering laughter. And that's just kind of this like nervous energy that's trying to be, that's trying to escape. If we talk about uncomfortable things, you know, if, if you think back to like a, a sex education class in seventh grade, you got a lot of really uncomfortable preteens in there or teenagers and so they're willing to laugh at like anything that's that's said because we're just really uncomfortable in that setting. And I must admit, I've found myself, I enjoy making people laugh and always have done ever since I was at school. And you, I, you do that to relieve that tension. It, it, you, I virtually feel it's like a responsibility to say something that people will laugh about because then it releases that tension, doesn't it? Yeah. And there, there have been studies that show even within like a negotiation. So if you've got these two parties who are at odds and there's some tension there and and they fundamentally disagree. You know, there are studies that show that when one party or the other makes a joke and kind of, you know, can laugh about something, that releases a lot of that tension and can actually make it more likely that the parties will come to an agreement. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You can look for opportunities where tension naturally exists and that will facilitate humor. A lot of joke telling though kind of artificially ramps up the tension. So you, you can think of these jokes that have a surprise or a twist ending. There's a, a character of, of long form jokes where the person goes on a rambling story and kind of builds up this tension where we know there's a twist coming. We know there's a punchline, but by dragging it out, it kind of increases the tension and therefore increases the relief overall. I've always had this theory that the longer the joke, the worse it is. There are some forms of humor for which that is true. This theory of humor, though, would say that it can work in the opposite direction. I think it's hard. I think it's a skill. But there are examples, and we can include clips, links to these, but there's there's a famous example of the comedian Norm MacDonald telling a joke on the Conan O'Brien show that um, it's called the moth joke. And it, it goes on for like five or six minutes just kind of rambling and going nowhere and you can feel the audience getting more and more tense like where is this guy going with this and then it ends with this just stupid pun of a punchline and everybody loses it and just laughs uproariously because he he intentionally created that tension that he then relieved Have you got a business problem? And would you like us to help? Would you like your business problem addressed on the show? All you need to do is go on our website and record your pickle. Just go to beyondphilosophy.com backslash pickle. That's beyondphilosophy.com backslash pickle. And hit the big red button. We look forward to hearing you on the show.
The third and probably the most common theory is incongruity theory. So here's that quote from Cicero that you can drop on your wife. <laughs> he said, the most common kind of joke is that which we expect one thing and then another is said. Here our own disappointed expectation makes us laugh. And I think that actually encapsulates it pretty pretty well. So it's misdirection. Yes. Uh, we think we're going in one direction and then we we like go in another direction entirely. That's where the humor comes from. So a lot of one-liners and short jokes work in this form. A lot of times the expectations are formed by leaving out information. And so the audience kind of fills that in and, and they assume that we're going in a direction and then we, we go off in another direction. Right. Here's an example. This is from the stand-up comedian Jim Gaffigan, who's, who's great. I really love his stuff. But he did a, a quick one-liner once where he talked about getting a, one of those uh, genetic tests to, to find out his ancestry. Right. And he said, you do learn things from those genetic tests. Like I discovered I wasted $100. <laughs> So um, he sets up an expectation. You think he's got about to tell you about his ancestry, and instead sure. he goes in this other direction really quickly. <laughs> so a lot of wordplay falls in this category, classic setup punchlines. There's a branch of incongruity theory, again, going back to, to Monty Python, which is absurdist theory, absurdist humor. So now it's it's just like creating an incongruity, except the incongruity is profound. So Another one of the clips that you um, you sent me from Monty Python and the Holy Grail was the um, the French taunting. Yes, it was a lot. I love that. King Arthur rides up to a castle. Uh, the castle is taken over by by the French for some reason, and instead of either fighting them or some other normal way of interacting, the the Frenchman just stands on the castle wall and taunts him with the most absurd and strange set of insults. I, I've got, let me tell you this story, because I'm mad on Monty Pythons, okay? Um, it was released at the right time for me, right age. Anyway, there's a, there's a, um, uh, a castle in, there's lots of castles in England, but one of the castles in England is down at um, Tintagel, which is in Cornwall, the south of, the country and i went down there on on um vacation with one of my best mates uh, a guy called brian and we're both mad on monty python i found myself at the at the top of the castle walls he was at the bottom <laughs> <laughs> and we reenacted <laughs> we reenacted the whole of the sketch with loads of people walking around us one of the best lines that cracked me up hey you just reinforcing what you're saying if you haven't seen Monty Python's again, we'll put a, a link in the show notes. But they're riding on these horses, but they haven't got horses. All they've got is coconuts. <laughs> yeah. And they ride up to the wall. And so, he uh, says, to be clear, that the, the coconut is clapped together to make the yeah, sound. To make of the sounds of hooves. hooves. Yeah. Yes. And he walks up to King Arthur, goes to the castle, and says, If you join us on the quest for the Holy Grail, I will, you know, if you give us food and shelter for the night, we you can join us on the quest for the Holy Grail. The French guy at the top says, I don't think he'd be very keen. He's already got one, you see. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just ridiculous. Yeah. And then he whispers to his mates on the wall there, and he goes, I told them we already got one. <laughs> <laughs> and yes. they all snigger. And, he's, and King Arthur goes, I, they, you've already got one. <laughs> you say they've already got one. Yeah. Yes. Oh, you got to watch it. It's great. It's exactly this. Like, it's so absurd yeah. that a conversation like this could happen. Yeah. 
that we find it funny. Yeah, well, but but I think the other thing it does is it reinforces that sort of stereotype between the English and the French. Yes. As well, and that sort of battles that we've had over the centuries. And it sort of it reinforces that just how ridiculous it is. I mean, it's like the you remember the other Monty Python's one with the, the knights that are fighting each other and one lops his legs off and he says, you know, it's only it's only a mere flesh wound, you know, and all those things. But yeah, no, I I, I see where you're coming from. It's just absolutely ridiculous and catches you totally uh, odds with what you think is going to happen. Yeah, I mean, I, it, you know, as I said, there are multiple things going on here. I think there's there's some superiority theory there. Again, King Arthur, poor guy, is getting deflated again. Yeah. Um, and he's being insulted. And so that's there's some of that humor. But a lot of Monty Python is, I mean, if, you know, classic Monty Python sketches like uh, the Ministry of, of Silly Walks. I mean, it's just it's just so absurd. It's hard to even explain what it is because it's just so incongruous with anything that we would we would experience. And so, yeah, a lot of Monty Python is incongruity theory. Okay, one last one to talk about. Okay. And this one, I think, is the best, the most scientific of the theories. And I think it's useful when applied in conjunction with the three that we've already talked about. So this is the newest theory of of the four. It's gotten very popular just in the last uh, decade or two. And it's called the benign violation theory. And so the the idea with this one is that all humor comes from some kind of violation. So it can be a violation of a social norm. It can be a violation of a linguistic norm. So a lot of puns violate the way language is supposed to be used. It can be a violation of an expectation. So this would be like an incongruity. It can be a violation of dignity. So that would be a lot of superiority theory. But it's some kind of violation. But that's not enough. It's a violation, but ultimately the violation proves to be benign. So it proves to be, it's a violation, but the violation itself is, is ultimately not threatening. Right. And so it's, it's that, that release of kind of reaction to, to the violation, which causes the humor. So there's a famous phrase, and a lot of comedians have used it, but it's a tragedy plus time equals comedy. That encapsulates the, the benign violation theory. So the idea is that... Tragedy, that's a violation. That's something terrible. But with time, it's more removed from us. And so if it happens to somebody else or if it happened a long time ago, then that violation feels less threatening. It feels more benign. And so that then becomes funny. There's a great Mel Brooks quote. He says, tragedy is when I cut my finger. Comedy is when you fall into an open sewer and die. And again, the idea is if it happens to me, it's very close. And so it feels very threatening. If it happens to somebody else or if it happens a long time ago or if it happens in kind of a a more abstract setting, then that feels less threatening. And so this is therefore funny. So where does sarcasm and what I would call, well, we in England, we would call it taking the mickey. Yeah. Okay. Or if I was to swear, taking the piss. Yeah. And that in the States, would you'd put under the category of ribbing or teasing, wouldn't you? Yes. That's a great question. So here's, I think, an instance where we can combine benign violation theory with one of the earlier theories and really start to paint a picture. So I think that a lot of, you know, taking the piss or, or teasing or ribbing, a lot of that is superiority theory, right? Like I'm, I'm bringing you low by kind of attacking you in this way. 
that's superiority theory, and that explains why we'd find it. And if if you tease me and I find it funny, then it could still be superiority theory, where it's me looking back at my past self and kind of realizing I'm superior now to how I used to be. But where I think that this this benign violation theory helps us is sometimes teasing somebody is funny, and sometimes it starts a fight. Yes. Right. And so when when does it do one versus the other? And I think that this benign violation theory explains why that does. So the classic example of teasing or ribbing is among close friends. So if you get together with your buddies at the pub, it may be that you spend the entire night teasing each other and kind of ridiculing each other over, over you know, mistakes people have made or foibles that they have. But when it's within a group of friends, all of those violations are benign. You realize that your friend actually likes you, that they're not actually trying to like get you angry, that it's all in good fun. If you were to say exactly the same things to somebody you did not know very well, then it could be that those violations are not benign. Those feel threatening now. And to be honest with you, the use of sarcasm, the, this taking the mickey, teasing, ribbing, are really two big traits that happens in England. Okay. And what I've discovered is that when, and so we, as you know, we spend half of our life in, in the States. What I've discovered is Americans don't get it as much, don't get the joke as much. So I've been, uh, we've got a group of friends who know us now. But at the beginning, when I used to either be sarcastic to something they would say or would be sarcastic to my wife and she knows me well enough to know that I was effectively ribbing her or whatever, they thought I was being serious. And and where I would say something and then expect people to laugh, you know, they were actually looking at me as if to say, I can't believe you just said that. You know, that, that's totally wrong. You know, you shouldn't say that to your wife. And I'm thinking, no, I'm only taking a mickey. We do this all the time, you know. And, and again, I think that's a difference between the, the, the UK and the US. And I, and I think the other thing that you just said was, it's true. I found that what I've discovered over the years is I will only take the mickey out of people that I feel I know. So as soon as I start taking the mickey out of them, it's actually sending them, them a signal that says, I know you well enough to be able to do this now. Because, and, and this is an important thing. I was listening to a comedian talk about this. There's a line, and some of the best comics know where the line is. So if they cross the line, it's too much. And people would say, no, that joke is inappropriate, you know, I don't know, about a recent tragedy or something that's happened, you know. They would say, no, that's, that's you know, you've stepped over the line, that's no longer funny. But the jokes that are really close to the line work the best. Does that make sense? I think that's exactly right. And I, I think that that gets at kind of the heart of this benign violation theory. So for in order for the joke to be funny, there has to be a violation. And when you say, you know, getting close to that line, essentially what we're saying is that makes the violation larger, kind of more profound. But if it's still on the side of the line, then it's still benign. And and the, the point that you raised about, you know, this depends on culture is absolutely correct. So there, culturally, we're prepared to accept certain behaviors as being benign or not, right? But it's beyond culture too. Like the setting matters. So a comedian could could insult you from the stage as part of their act, you know, when they're doing audience work, 
And because of the setting, that's totally appropriate. And we know that it's benign. And so we all laugh at it and it's fine. The same person could say exactly the same thing to you on the street at a bus stop, and it would be fighting words because the context is now different. Yes. In fact, the comedian I I was referring to would say what they did was they used to try to find, because it varied by audience, where the line was. Yes. Yes. They would purposely say a couple of jokes that were either over the line or up to the line to see if they got a laugh. And if they got a, oh, shouldn't, you know, that sort of wince of you shouldn't say that, they knew that that's where the line was and then they would come back from from that. But with other audiences, you know, if, if they found that was the case, then he knew that he could say some some things that were more inappropriate, if you like. I think that's a great example of exactly what we're talking about. You'll, you'll hear a lot of comedians nowadays complain about doing comedy on college campuses. Yes. And and I think that that is exactly the same phenomenon um, where you've got these comedians who were used to working in comedy clubs where the line is much further out. But then you have a younger group of people who are kind of more socially aware and have a different set of norms and expectations. Yes. And their line is drawn in a completely different place. You know, you can imagine if you were performing stand-up comedy at like a Christian camp, that line is going to be drawn in a completely different place again. right? And so knowing where that line is helps us determine what's benign and what is not benign, and therefore what is funny and what is offensive. There was a couple of other things I was going to talk to you about in this whole area, because I I think these are important. One was timing. Yeah. So I greatly admire you standing up and doing, being a stand-up comedian. It's not something I would enjoy doing. I'm more of a ad-libber, yeah? Mm -hmm. But being able to stand up, I know timing comes into that. But what I found over the years, again, is the timing, if somebody says something and you want to interject something funny, you've only got a few seconds, you know, 30 seconds, to say something that's funny. Because if you if you don't hit that 30 seconds, it, you know, it basically just disappears. You said it like a minute later, you'd say it, and they would look at you and they'd say, well, you, well, you know, you're just trying to be funny, aren't you, Colin? We've moved on. So timing, and, and that sort of ties into the second part, which is, and I guess this is just normal, there are people that are just naturally good at this stuff, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Naturally do that type of timing and know when to say things and when not to say things. Yes. So um, very good questions. Uh, timing ties into two of the theories that we talked about. So one is relief theory. So again, there the, the timing is around kind of building up maximal tension before it's released. And so that's why if sometimes people reveal the punchline too early, then it makes the joke fall flat because they haven't built up enough tension to allow that to happen. And then incongruity theory is the other. So a lot of times, especially when we're telling jokes, we need to set people on a path so that we can change directions. So if we don't time it right, then they may not be on that path yet. And so now we're misdirecting them before they've got a direction. And so that timing can play into both of those types of humor. And you're right, a lot of people who are naturally funny just intuitively understand the importance of timing and, and how to get that down. Other people, I would argue, can learn. I think that these are skills that can be learned and refined. We're not going to turn anybody into Robin Williams, but I think that we can take you from where you are to being yeah. 
slightly funnier. And, and part of that is understanding the importance of timing as it relates to both relief and as it relates to incongruity. No, I agree with that. So let's take a step back because let's bring the bring the show to a close. Let's ask from a business context then, the usual sort of so what question. So what has this got to do with customer experience, with improving a organization's experience that they have with their customers? There is research at this point that has found that bosses who use a sense of humor, and, and I'll I'll add the caveat here. As scientists have studied this, there there is what's known as or has come to be thought of as positive humor and as negative humor. So positive humor kind of pulls people together, it releases tension, it kind of doesn't tear down hierarchies or or structures. That kind of positive humor, bosses who who have it tend to be rated as being much more pleasant to work for. Salespeople who have it tend to be much more successful empirically. People tend to like them better. So the idea that we can incorporate some humor into our business lives and make our employees happier and make our customers happier and relieve tension, all of that is an opportunity for us. We can't just be funny for the sake of being funny if we're using some of those negative humor tactics. So if we tear people down, if we kind of snipe at people, you know, if people feel threatened by our sense of humor instead of feeling uplifted by it, that's all very negative. So it's not just being funny, it's being funny in the right way. But recognizing that that's an opportunity, it doesn't require a huge change. Just just being a little bit more accommodating to humor can give other people in the organization license to do the same. And again, you have to police and make sure that it is appropriate humor. That's very, very important. But Humor can do us a lot of good professionally. So I encourage us to look for those opportunities. And when we look for them, we'll start to see more of them. Yeah, I I think all those points are really good. And both of us use humor a lot to our own advantage. It certainly helped me build teams. It certainly helped me get that tension out of the room. You know, and, and if you like someone, and humor can make people do that. They can encourage you to sort of a, to, to like that individual. Then it just um, makes things a, a lot easier. I, I do think that too many organizations don't encourage it. I think you've got to be careful with it. And the key word that you use there is it's got to be appropriate. Yeah. And you've got to know your audience. That's the, you know, the, the key. So you've really got to know where that line is. And there are clearly some situations where you would never use humor because it was just totally inappropriate. But I do think that organizations suppress it, basically. And I think that that is wrong. I think that, you know, having a, a course for your frontline or some of your frontline people on humor and everything else would actually be a, a good thing. They would probably enjoy it as, as well. So anyway, I hope that's been of use. The teacher, when they told me that I was the clown of the class, didn't realize what an advantage that would give me. (laughs) I'd love to go back and go, you told me this, but look, look at this feedback I've got from this podcast. It told me that that Ron and I are really quite enjoying ourselves and um, people enjoy that. So we hope that's been of use and we look forward to joking with you next week. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did, just a reminder, It would be really great if you could vote for us in the People's Choice Podcast Award. The voting is only in the month of July. 
The link is in the show notes and it really doesn't take long to cast your vote. And it would really mean a lot to both Ryan and I. Thanks very much. Cheers. This has been The Intuitive Customer with Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton. But it doesn't end here. Just go to beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast to find all of our shows, access free tools and resources, and subscribe, won't you? That way you'll never miss a show. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash podcasts. We look forward to talking with you next time on The Intuitive Customer. Thank you.